0: Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. On behalf of BMO Financial Group and us here in BMO Capital Markets, Welcome to the call today, which is the Omicron variant, a medical and markets perspective. We're blessed and honored uh, to have uh, our chief medical expert here at BMO, Dr. John White from WebMD, along with subject matter experts, our deputy chief economist, Michael Gregory, and Margaret Kerens, head of fixed income currency and commodity research, and myself with respect to markets. The flow of the call will work um, as follows. I will introduce Dr. John White. He will provide some commentary with respect to the update in terms of the Omicron variant. I will ask him a few questions and then we'll hand the ball off to our subject matter experts here at BMO. Then we'll follow up with Q&A. You have functionality um, as a participant on this call with respect to Q&A, so please, we want to hear from you. And uh, again, this is your resource with respect to uh, the Omicron variant. As an uh, introduction to Dr. John White, he's the chief medical officer at WebMD. As I said, in this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the director of professional affairs and stakeholder engagement at the Center for Drug Eval Research at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Dr. John White is an active… A participant in the medical field. He's still a doctor in the Washington, D.C. area. And oh, by the way, he is also an accomplished author. He recently uh, published a book entitled Take Control of Your Cancer Risk, which was published in October of 2021. It's a great resource for us here at BMO Financial Group. I personally have learned a lot from Dr. White, and I want to thank him personally for everything that he's done uh, for us and our clients. I will remind you um, that as we get started, I point you to the BMO disclosure page via the web link and close in the bottom of the invitation that you would have received. Given that we're talking about sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you seek medical advice, please do so accordingly and uh, directly consult your physician and or healthcare professional. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. John White. He's going to give us an update. Uh, I'll ask him a couple of questions after that, and then we'll hand it off to our subject matter experts. Dr. White, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Brian. And thank you for that kind invitation. Good morning, everyone.
2: Uh, Just wanna say I'm gonna review kind of what's the latest data about COVID and Omicron. And if you have questions, put them in the chat box and nothing is off limits. So let's put it in perspective as to where we are today. And the seven day average here in the United States is about 100,000 cases, 100,000 new cases every day. The seven-day average of deaths is around 1,000. Now that's not where we want to be nearly a year since vaccines became available. So the concern is that the trend line is flattening out, meaning it's it's really ending around that 100,000 um, new cases a day. And, and, and that's the challenge that we have in getting the virus under control. Now. There is encouraging news that the the proportionality in terms of the number of deaths per new cases is not what it was earlier this year. Yet again, it's still too many. And and something, if you've listened to these other ones that I've talked a lot about, is all about locality. And, And that's what's important for you to know. We talk about the broad numbers and the aggregate, but what really matters for you is what's happening in your state, your city, your county, your province. And when we look at the number of cases, there are a few states that are accounting for the majority of cases. Part of it is population. Part of it is low vaccination rates, but it's Arizona, California, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Those are all states where we're still seeing a high number of cases. In Canada, it's about 3,500 new cases a day and 20 deaths. And as you know, the, uh, you know it's a 10th of the population. Uh, Quebec and Ontario, the greatest number of cases over the past seven days. And, and that makes sense if you're looking at population. But what I thought would be interesting to point out that if you look at cases per 100,000 people and look from the beginning, it's actually Alberta that has the highest number of cases for population. So that's important to keep in mind what's happening in local areas. And I mention it because when we talk about travel, it's always important to know what's happening locally in terms of community spread. So let's talk about immunizations. In the United States, about 234 million people or 71% of the population have received at least one dose. Overall, about 197 million, or 60% of the population, has been fully vaccinated. Now, let's be realistic. There's no magic number about what that percentage needs to be. But most experts agree that 71%, certainly 60% for one dose is is too low. And that's what's allowing the virus to live, to infect other people, and, and mutate. Remember, viruses have to find a host to mutate. And when they mutate, they become stronger. It's kind of like survival of the fittest. So that's why vaccinations is so important. And many states in the South, Arkansas, Tennessee, Louisiana, have less than half of the population vaccinated. So that's the concern about spread. Now, I always like to give the good news as well, that 99% of people over the age of 65, 99% have received at least one vaccine. 86% are fully vaccinated. So that's really good, because those are the people that are most at risk. And that's probably why we don't see that proportionate increase in the number of deaths. Now, Canada is doing much better. It started slower in terms of vaccine supply, but now it outpaces the United States in all age categories for vaccination. When you look at total population, 79% of Canadians have received at at least one dose, 89% of people 12 years of age and older. And when you look at 30, uh, when you look at fully vaccinated, 75% of people have been fully vaccinated in Canada, 86% people over the age of 12. So that's real progress in Canada. You know, in the United States, we're still averaging about a million immunizations a day. That's probably a bit on the low side, given where we are right now. And in terms of boosters, about 5% are, have received it in Canada, those that were eligible, about 23% in the United States. And, and that's partly a result of that we started earlier than Canada in giving vaccinations. And I do want to point out to everyone, in case they had not heard, The CDC now recommends boosters for everyone over the age of 18. Before, they said consider if you didn't have underlying health conditions, but now the recommendation with Omicron is that everyone over the age of 18 should get a booster. And I think when we talk about boosters in the future, after we get through the Omicron variant, I think we're going to start thinking about the need. We need boosters again to reformulate the boosters, to more adequately address you know, some of these variants. The other thing to keep in mind that I think we're gonna start hearing much more discussion around is this issue of vaccine inequity. And we've talked about this before, that we're not safe until we're all safe. If you look at low income countries, roughly 8% of that population is vaccinated, 8%. So if we really wanna quash this pandemic, recognizing it's a global economy, global travel, we need to also focus on vaccinating the rest of the world. Now, let's talk about Omicron, uh, what today's webinar is, is mostly about. And you know, its scientific name is B11529. It's a variant of concern, that's the highest level designated by the World Health Organization. I just thought I'd throw this in for you, uh, lovers of the Greek alphabet. You may say, well, you know, Omicron is the, the 15th letter. Have we? Um, you know, had 15 variants, and you might have seen uh, WHO actually skipped new and uh, Xi because new could be confusing. It's the new variant, uh, and Xi is is a common last name. So they decided to to skip those. So just in case you were wondering that. And I want to point out with Omicron, there's more that we don't know than we know right now. And I want to point out, Delta is still the dominant strain. Right? And that's important. Remember, we're spending a lot of time talking about Omicron, but Delta right now is, is the strand that's causing a, a lot of misery. And Omicron is becoming more widespread. It's in at least 15 states. But I, I want to be realistic. It's probably much more widespread than that in the United States and Canada. And the reason why I say that is we don't do enough genomic sequencing on average in the United States, we do about 3% of all positive samples, 3%. It's been a little better in the last few weeks. Canada's on average about 9%, but most places are doing less than 10%. So if you're not testing for it, you really don't know. So then it becomes simply a matter of time. But the reality is it's, it's probably in most states and most provinces. Now, what was the initial concern is that when you look at Omicron, it has 30 mutations to the spike protein. By reference, Delta had four mutations. And remember, the spike protein, that's that crown coronavirus, that's where the word comes from, is what latches onto ourselves, latches on into our lungs and cause the damage. If we have a lot of mutations to this spike protein, does that mean we're going to be able to fight it with the vaccine? Is it going to be more transmissible? And there is the feeling that it is likely more transmissible. More transmissible. But that doesn't mean that it will cause more death, because there's two separate issues here. There's transmissibility versus virulence. Um, and the outcomes could turn out to be you know, pretty similar to previous variants, such as alpha or delta. So we, we don't know that yet in terms of what we're seeing. And, and you may have heard, well, we're waiting a couple of weeks to find out more. And part of that is they really were searching for patients in South Africa and other areas of the world to test their serum and to test their blood against the vaccines and determine how effective they are. That's why we're gonna learn more in probably another week or so. But what this tells you overall is that you don't wanna let your guard down. You continue to do what you're doing for Delta, which is get vaccinated, get a booster, wear a mask in some indoor settings, based on what the community transmission is. And the other point is to test, test, and test. You know, there's been supply issues for the rapid antigen uh, test. It's been spotty in certain areas of the country and in, in, in Canada to get, but they're gonna play a significant role. and We need to encourage using them much more often, especially if you're symptomatic, before you go somewhere, when you might be seeing people that are immunocompromised, perhaps when you come back from a trip, um, And rapid tests, I want to point out, have become much more accurate. They're not the gold standard of PCR, but they do help guide decision-making, and they give you more data, and I really encourage that. And in the United States, uh, the president has announced that private insurers are going to have to uh, cover rapid tests. That's not till next month. They still have to work out some details. It's not clear how many you'd be eligible for. Do you have to be symptomatic? But the point is, this is a a useful tool, and I want to encourage doing that. I will point out real quickly that the rapid tests don't tell you whether or not you have Omicron, neither does the PCR test. You can't go somewhere and say, hey, what what variant did I have? Remember, genomic sequencing is done not that often. But real quickly, um, I just also want to point out that the the future is in terms of treatments, therapeutics, and and antivirals. Both Merck and Pfizer uh, have antivirals currently that they've been uh, studying. You may know that Merck recently submitted therospinal ternivir, a vote of 13 to 10 advisory committee approved it. This is a pill, uh, Pfizer's is a pill as well. You take twice a day for five days. Um, the data did not turn out as well as Merck initially reported. It probably reduces hospitalizations about 30%. There's a risk benefit analysis that has to be considered, but we're gonna continue to make progress. And we're gonna continue to see iterations in terms of therapeutics. There's uh, interferon beta, that's being studied as inhalers. So we're seeing a lot more progress in terms of therapeutics. And we have to be realistic that that's one of the ways, given the vaccine hesitancy around the world, uh, that is gonna help get this virus under control and ultimately get it to a point where it's at an endemic level. Uh, With that, I'll I'll turn it back over to Brian. I, I talked fast, but I wanted to cover a lot of data and help put it in perspective for folks.
0: No, that was great, John. And uh, with much humility, we have some great questions from, from the crowd here. And I was going to come up with my own question, but clients always have the best question. So it sounds like someone's going to be traveling here soon and wants to know uh, the situation in Mexico. We don't hear a lot about Mexico. You know You uh-huh. The holidays are coming up and we're hopefully all going to be able to jump yeah. on airplanes and, and go somewhere warm. And so can you give us a little more color with respect to how COVID looks in Mexico and some of the preventative measures going back and forth either to Canada and or the United States? Yeah.
2: And I just want to put it out there. So everyone, just as practical advice, we have to recognize that travel rules are changing rapidly. We had some new rules applied today for international travel. And something that you have to keep in mind is even if you're fully vaccinated and you travel outside of the country, and you get a breakthrough infection, because remember the vaccines, they're not sterilizing, they don't remove any type of infection. But if you test positive prior to coming back in internationally, that's going to be a challenge. You're not going to get back in. So I just want to remind people, you have to keep that in mind, even if you're a citizen, if you test positive and you will have to get a test prior to returning to the United States, that could be a concern. You know, I think the issue is whether it's Mexico or anywhere else, you really want to look at what's what's happening, and the CDC does put a list uh, where they discourage travel to. And if that's the case, that implies that it's high community spread. What I would do, whether I was traveling to Mexico or Canada or wherever, I would do my own test, a rapid test, just prior to going. Um, I'd make sure I don't have any, you know, strict time constraint when I get back because just in case you test positive, how's that gonna impact um, if you have to stay in another country for about two weeks um, extra or 10 days, and, and then just you know, check again right before you go, because this is a rapidly changing situation. Canada, as I point out, is doing much better than the United States in terms of percent immunizations, in terms of um, number of cases, that's very good. And they have a robust testing system. Mexico, not as well. And there's different pockets within Mexico. Some are doing much better, primarily the urban areas um, than the uh, rural areas. I assume if you're going, you're going to resort, there's gonna be a lot more safeguards there. So that's encouraging news.
0: One quick follow-up question on that, uh, Dr. White, and then an additional question that I'll paraphrase from the crowd and then we'll hand it off to Michael. Why is Canada doing so much better? Do you have any kind of empirical data or belief on that? Or is it a subjective opinion? Or why do you think Canada is doing so much better than the United States? And
2: and remember, I I pointed out that Canada started later in terms of vaccination because of vaccine supply. This is just my subjective uh, assessment of it. I think Canadians are much more focused on community. They're much more focused on, on helping their friends, their family members, their neighbors. I think in the United States, it's very much focused on on individual rights. And I haven't seen the the fights at school boards happening in Canada, the the other fights about the rejection of science. So I think in many ways, Canada has much more been receptive to following mitigation strategies, which we know work, mask wearing, social distancing, and, and they based it on science. And I might point out Canada has done very well with the schools and they had a uh, three meter uh, distance, uh, they had a meter distance instead of, um, you know, six feet. So they actually had tighter in the schools and still did better. And I think there, there's many reasons because of their sense of community.
0: And as kind of a follow up, just to wrap this all up before we hand it off to Michael, we talked about boosters, we mm-hmm. talked about therapeutics, where is this thing going, John? Uh, is it gonna become like a flu type of thing every year in the season? Uh, is that how you, where you see this going? Um, or is it a combination or, or kind of what is, what, where is this thing going?
2: I think it's gonna become endemic, like flu with this low level of activity, you know, throughout the year. And the reason why I think that is, is because of the vaccine hesitancy. There's still gonna be a large percentage of people that choose not to get vaccinated in the United States, which is going to allow the virus to survive, and I think that's also going to happen around the world. So it's going to be this baseline level. It just won't be as deadly. Uh, it won't be resulting in as many hospitalizations, but the key is we don't want to have to wait another year or two to get to that point of it becoming endemic. That's why you know we still have to, to have our foot on the gas now uh, You know to power through this.
0: Thanks, Dr. White. Uh, we've got a ton of questions coming through the portal, so thank you so much, everyone. Keep them coming. We're going to hand uh, the portion of the broadcast now off to our subject matter experts. Uh, first off, Dr. Michael Gregory, who happens to be Deputy Chief Economist here at BMO Financial Group. Mr. Gregory, the floor is yours. Thank you, Brian. All right, well, as,
3: uh, as Dr. White uh, just said, uh, with respect to Omicron, we, we tend to uh, uh, know less than we actually actually know about it. And, uh, and that's, that's a problem because you're thinking about what are the economic implications of, of this variant. It, uh, it's difficult to assess. I mean, obviously, we know that the global travel industry has been the first casualty as countries around the world have brought in travel bans and uh, uh, to certain, you know, African countries. And and of course, uh, most countries have brought in more onerous travel restrictions. And some like even effective even today uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, testing, you know, 24 hours before you enter. Uh, uh, so so that, that, that's a damper, but we really don't know what more is gonna happen until we have a sense of what kind of virus it's gonna be. Uh, and in the meantime, as, as Dr. White, uh, mentioned is that delta rules and that's what we're seeing around the world well it's the delta variant that's the, the that's the predominant one that's impacting economies and, and we're seeing that even now with some of the surges we've seen in in europe and asia which is causing some countries even to go back into lockdown or limited lockdowns uh more onerous restrictions and of course that is just further contributing to not only the headwind for global growth but uh you know the uh, a further uh, exacerbating of, of uh Global supply bottlenecks and and sort of the, the primary driver of inflation these days. So so you know it's the delta really we really have to be worried about. But uh, we can think about as for North America as we sort of head into the uh, the winter season when well, we know respiratory infections tend to rise anyway. You know uh, th- this 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 idea of a, of a possible a surge in Delta or or, or a Delta Omicron combo uh, and you know. W- w- What's that going to matter? What's it going to mean for the economy? And, and I think uh, a couple things are, are worth noting here is that uh, uh, you know, unless we see you know, very uh, noticeable you know, increases in hospitalization rates and mortality rates, we are unlikely to see the kind of onerous restrictions that have been very dampening on, on the economy. And uh, yes, we may get sort of capacity limits on indoor dining and things like that, uh, you know, as if, if should cases rise. But to me, uh, the bigger issue, and, and we saw this during the, the last uh, Delta wave in the United States, that even though, you know, consumers were able to uh, go freely throughout the economy, you know, uh, households chose not to uh, eat out as much uh, during uh, the latest wave. They chose not to fly as much. So so confidence is key here, uh, regardless of what uh, governments do in terms of bringing in uh, uh, more uh, restrictions. The other thing I think you have to sort of keep keep in mind here is is that currently in the economy, we have a tremendous amount of momentum on both sides of the border. In fact, we've just recently upgraded our our, our forecast for both economies for the fourth quarter by a percentage point, looking for 4.5% growth in the current quarter in Canada, 5.5% in the US, you can think of now this is momentum that we're providing uh, presumably as we hit some kind of a headwind, whether it's Delta, whether it's Omicron, whether it's a combination of both. So I think that's sort of a a positive development uh, from that perspective. Uh, uh, The other thing that I think to keep in mind here is uh, we do have this momentum in the economy and uh, inflation on the ground as everyone knows uh, it remains quite high on both sides of the border. We're looking at decade uh, uh, high rates of inflation uh, we do know that we have yet to see the the, the peak in inflation that will likely come uh, during the winter months. Before presumably things will cool off uh, this spring, uh, uh, as as uh, uh, next spring, uh, as uh, this spring, sort of reopening surge in prices is not repeated uh, in early 2022. Uh, so inflation rates will come down, but it's uh, you know it's how quickly do they come down? To what level do they end up at? That's the big question marks that central banks are, 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 are struggling with now. And, uh, and the one thing about, uh, uh, you know, uh, concerns about a, a, a new variant or concerns about the old variant that's actually had already proven to have an impact on the economy is, is that it's negative for growth. And at the same time, you know, uh, it, it is will probably contribute a little bit more to inflation pressure to the extent it exacerbates uh, uh, bottlenecks. And this is the struggle that central banks, not only the Fed and the Bank of Canada, but central banks around the world are facing right now. How do you deal with, the, with, with clearly are mounting risks for the economic outlook and also mounting risks to the inflation outlook? And I think we're starting to see a, a, a sentiment change among the, the global central banking community where, where yes, we recognize the risks, but now we've got to pay perhaps a little bit more attention to the inflation risk uh, than we would have, say a year ago or six months ago, because inflation is simply too high, uh, and and we're just not certain, you know, how far it's going to fall, at what level we settle down it, and we're concerned about seeing inflation expectations become unanchored. So what we are beginning to see is is more hawkish talks coming out of central banks, whether it was uh, you know Chair Powell uh, last week and and the decision to uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, potentially consider tapering at a quicker pace. To uh, literally create more opportunity to to raise rates as early as next spring instead of next summer, and, and we'll be hearing from the Bank of Canada in the next few days, and and, and they too have already signaled that uh, you know they, they you know only expect to be keeping rates at their current levels until the uh, the middle quarters of next uh, year, meaning they could be raising rates as early as the spring at the same time. So so I do think, despite the fact we have you know, the, these concerns coming from Omicron and, and from Delta and the impact on the economy, see inflation consequences that are getting a little bit more weight in central bank's uh, reaction functions. And uh, the good news is that unless we, we, we see more onerous restrictions being applied, and given the very high vaccination rates we have on both sides of the border, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case, again, unless we start seeing see hospitalization and mortality rates go up, uh, again, we just don't know. But from where we stand right now, we do think just like Chair Powell thinks that the economy has been able to weather these uh, repeated waves with uh, uh, in, in better, better shape. And, and I think that will be the case come what will probably be the next wave. That will be the case come, well, I'll leave it at that for now, Brian.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. Now it's on to our head of fixed income currency and commodity strategy, Margaret Cairns. Go ahead, Margaret.
4: Thank you, Brian. So as as Michael mentioned, the Fed has really shifted their focus to fighting the inflation risk. And of course, uh, anchoring inflation in the first place was a very painful experience. Uh, So what I would say is that the Fed is shifting to a more traditional reaction function to inflation. Um, most recently, as Michael mentioned, you know, the Fed has acknowledged that the upside risks to inflation are likely to outweigh the risks to employment, and they are now willing to taper faster so that they can be prepared to lift off earlier if they need to in order to maintain price stability and, and the to, to ward off any uh, inflation risks. So, you know, that's a key in the in the reaction function and the market has clearly also reacted to that. So basically the Fed can't allow inflation to seep into the decisions made by the consumers because once that happens, it can become self-fulfilling, especially in the backdrop of you know, increasing wages and diminishing uh, labor market slack, and and as Michael also mentioned, uh, you know these issues with regard to the supply chain. So the emergence of this new variant really adds another element to the risk. On the inflation front, the risk is that the supply chain disruptions intensify, that they last longer than uh, we we had initially expected, and and so this is very tricky. It's tricky for the Fed because the variant poses downside risks to the economic recovery and employment, uh, you know, just with concern over delayed return to office and what that means for some of these uh, urban centers. So the Fed is in this position of really trying to thread a very, very fine needle. They need to slow demand to contain inflation, but really just slow it long enough for some of the supply and employment frictions to work their way through and and to ease. So, you know, as Dr. Wyatt has mentioned, we should get a better understanding of the health risks posed by the variant in coming weeks. So what does this mean for interest rates? Obviously, we've seen uh, quite a bit of volatility over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, We know now that the Fed is clearly willing to raise uh, short-term rates to ward off any inflation risk and this has given you know the fed credibility and we've seen long-term rates actually fall Uh, the front end is uh, continuing to rise in terms of rates as the market prices in an increasing probability uh, that the fed does in fact tighten uh, next year and and really what we've seen in the past pricing uh, the market will revert to the most recent experience and likely pricing you know a fed hike every quarter or three hikes a year something that's more of what we've seen in, in the most recent past um and, and the other the backdrop really the question that we get often you know what's going on with tens we're down at 140 we you know hit the 130s last week um and really the bottom line for that is that we do have uneven vaccine rates as dr wyatt mentioned We've got different reaction functions to the, 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 the outbreaks uh, by country and, and different uh, implications for the global economy. And of course, you know, 10-year yields are the flight quality asset for the globe. And so regardless of what is happening in the U.S. economy, uh, we're still going to get this backdrop of a bid for 10s due to the international demand. Uh, So, you know, in terms of expectations for for TENS into next year, you know, we do think we're we're more bearish than we were this year. This year, we did start off with a call that TENS would end, you know, the year at 135 to 140 and, you know, held that call uh, despite the backup, especially in the first quarter. Um, and now we do think that we will have a bit more of a bearish impulse next year, uh, that TENS will push up into the 2% range. But again, in the global backdrop, you know, if we get into a 225 type of range, we expect better buying to emerge. Uh, we do think you know, Q2, maybe the end of Q1, uh, we could see this 2% level. And again, we're only at 140 now, so it's quite a, quite a ways to go. In terms of the expectations for Fed tightening, we're holding our most likely case uh, September to December. And you know, the risk, of course, is to an earlier liftoff, um, given the Fed's concern over the inflation risks and the desire to wind down purchases uh, quite a bit earlier uh, does give them the cover if they need to raise rates to ward off any inflation risks and any inflation uh, expectations. Uh, increase in expectations is undesirable. Again, it's not our base call, but something to be watching for, and we're gonna see bouts of market pricing uh, where we where the, the increase uh, the Fed timing and and possibly even the pace at which the market expects the Fed to increase. But again, holding our call at this time. In terms of terminal rate, we looked to the last cycle and the Fed was only able to achieve that 225 to 250 range. They held it there for about seven months and of course had to do some tweaking uh, back lower down to the 175 level. Of course, one key difference now is the inflation backdrop. And the very concept of allowing inflation to to run slightly above their mandate, their mandate uh, it was really because they wanted to be able to get that terminal rate higher than the past. Uh, of course, the Fed dot plot is still expecting a two fifty uh, terminal rate, which is higher than the 175 that they actually ended up achieving in the last cycle. Uh, we will get another dot plot next Wednesday. All eyes will be on that, but changes to the long run terminal rate don't really occur uh, very often. And so it's unlikely that we're gonna see that uh, because the Fed is going to message that they're going to have appropriate monetary policy in order to achieve their uh, their both their employment and inflation goals and the terminal rate. Um, so you know the timing of the liftoff and the pace will uh, depend on the economic outlook at the time. We do think that the Fed is likely to be uh, to begin with caution. Uh, We've seen in the past, uh, you know, these fits and starts, and it's really because of, you know, the uneven economic global recovery and the implications of, you know, this current variant and and the likelihood that, you know, we're going to be living with this virus for some time. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we're not going to see volatile pricing. Uh, The market has been extremely volatile, uh, I think, over the past several weeks, especially. So that I can turn it back to Brian. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Margaret, and we will have some follow-up questions uh, for both uh, you and Michael during the more formal uh, Q&A session. I thought we'd talk a little bit about investment strategy, and these questions keep coming in for everybody, so thank you so much for doing that. We're going to cover as much as we possibly can. With respect to our outlooks uh, on the market, we published our year-ahead piece uh, for 2022 on November 18th. It is our 24th official forecast on the S&P 500 as the senior strategist uh, and our 10th consecutive forecast on the S&P 500 and the S&P TSX here at BMO. And it will come to no surprise to people out there that follow our work that were positive. uh, But I think the theme overall for 2022 is what we like to call in the business second derivative, meaning less positive, positive nonetheless, but still positive and so we equate uh, returns uh, if our targets are met for this year and I'll go over that in a second the high single digits low double digits for the S&P 500 and similar for the TSX uh, at $5, and dollars respectively in terms of the S&P 500 and dollars uh, with respect to earnings on the TSX now we think the U.S. remains uh, in a twenty to twenty five your secular bull market. That was a call that we originated in 2010. We remain steadfast with that. In fact, on March 23rd of 2020, we published a piece announcing that the second half of the bull market was starting at the the lows. Uh, And we continue to think that. We simply believe uh, that equity assets in the United States are the best equity assets in the world, and that investors should tilt toward quality while also focusing on growth at a reasonable price and dividend growth investing. Same thing holds true for Canada. We are eerily similar with respect to our sector positioning and our size and style, but really this tilt toward quality, but especially uh, dividend growth investing in Canada to get us to that 24,000 target, which is another new high uh, with respect to the Canadian index. So as America goes, so goes Canada. Those sectors uh, that are economically sensitive to to the fantastic cross-border allegiance that we have from an economic perspective we think will continue to benefit so our sector overweights in both countries are as follows financials discretionary industrials and materials in canada we've had a tremendous run in energy obviously we think next year we're probably going to see a little bit stronger uh, fundamental performance from the material sector we do think that energy prices are most likely going to be a bit lower, especially WTI and Western Canadian Select. That will be a positive for the Canadian consumer. And we think that the Canadian economy, thanks to Mr. Gregory's work, will continue to do its job in terms of of growth. And not uh, actually at a higher rate than the U.S. A lot of people don't know that. So we think that Canada is coming along for the ride. We think North American assets uh, are the place to be. Uh, And we remain positive now. What's gone on the last couple of weeks is just a simple case of fire aim ready with respect to what's happening in the markets. Today, we obviously have a very strong day uh, in equity markets. And I think uh, we're starting to see calmer heads prevail, thanks to, in part, very common sense and analytical comments from people like Dr. John White, which are kind of easing some of the fears out there. Uh, and a lot of people are making subjective opinions. So I would stress to people, out there uh don't be a, a closet uh epidemiologist virologist. let the let the experts do that and 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 let's keep on keeping on with respect to society and the workplace we have to kind of cut ourselves some slack we as a society and workplace did a wonderful job in terms of pivoting in in february march of 2020 we are prepared for this we are prepared for this and the market is seeing that and that's why we think the market uh in terms of equities uh, in the month of december could have an historic month in terms of the upside, given the fact of volatility everywhere else in the world, but given the fact and how I started my original comments that equity assets in the United States are the best assets in the world because we have the highest quality companies, because we have companies that are positioned for growth at a reasonable price uh, and dividend growth. Now, over the next three to five years, our favorite sectors are clearly technology, communication services, discretionary, and financials. Now, technology and communication services are 40% of the market a very important part of your portfolio longer term should be a little bit more overweight because these technology companies are obviously helping lead the uh the majority of the other sectors number one but number two they're exhibiting fundamental traits of cash flow balance sheet and most importantly from our lens earnings discernibility with respect to a low standard deviation of earnings meaning not variable not volatile the markets have obviously been volatile margaret talked about market volatility I believe that investors around the world will seek non volatile assets, which are indeed US stocks. We're going to hand, I'm going to ask a quick question uh, to Margaret, then Michael, uh, and then I'll go to the the prompter here in terms of a ton of questions for Dr. John White. So, my first question uh, actually, my question for Margaret would be this We talk a lot about the Fed doing what it's going to do, it's going to raise rates, it's going to taper. But can you give us some perspective uh, of the liquidity that still stands in the marketplace and what kind of is me looking for the next, let's say a couple of years in terms of Fed liquidity overall?
4: Sure, so I think that's one of the big questions in the marketplace today. The Fed has been the largest purchaser of U.S. treasuries over the past couple of years. They will continue, most likely, to um, hold their balance sheet constant, reinvesting um, any maturities. Uh, some of the concerns surrounding liquidity, you know, the Fed does own sixty. 60- to 70% of some of these maturities, you know, especially in the uh, 2030s, where, you know, way back when we didn't have a 30-year. Um, and, and some of the, the amount really available to other investors, in some cases, it's only, you know, $8 billion in in a certain uh, maturity year and only up to $50 billion. And just to put that in perspective, you know, if we're looking at the two-year sector, we've got over $2 trillion in outstandings available to the marketplace after the Fed so just some concerns about uh, liquidity in the market given that the Fed really was uh, the backdrop buyer across the curve and really without regard to price, you know, over the past couple of years. And I have to mention that at the same time, uh, you know, we do have treasury cutting on the run coupons. And so, you know, on the runs are very, very liquid. Um, but as coupon sizes cut, you know, that will reduce the amount available to the public as well. However, I don't see on the run um, liquidity really uh, suffering uh you know, especially in the front end of the curve, and you know, in tens and thirties, uh, we will continue to most likely have have the same amount of, um, I would say, relative uh, liquidity. On you know, twenties, obviously, have been change, uh, trading a little bit with a bump there. Um, you know, could not really. Uh, the same part of the curve, you know, as 10s and 30s uh, for, for the marketplace. But you know, overall, I think it's something to watch as the Fed extracts itself from being the largest purchaser, uh, coupled with uh, Treasury uh, reducing coupon sizes and the on the runs.
0: Thanks, Margaret. On to Michael Gregory. Quick question with respect to inflation. We are a binary state of world. It's either on, off, up, down, green, red. What's the difference between rising and high inflation? I think we've all seen the little girl in Germany post the World War I with a wheelbarrow full of German marks trying to buy a loaf of bread. We seem to be in the marketplace, and the press is doing a great job scaring everybody that we're heading into a high inflation environment, like the 70s. Uh, can you explain the difference and what your view is, the difference between rising inflation and high inflation, please? Well, I mean,
3: like, you're, it's a fair point. I mean, we're... we're you look at all the forecasts that are out there for inflation over the next few years and, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of 3%, uh, maybe get the odd 4% outlier, mostly with, with a sort of a two handle. So, I mean, what, what we're talking about potentially here is is a, is a one time run up uh, in, in price, prices because of largely because of supply bottlenecks, but also, you know, it's not just the supply side, it's also the demand side and and that's the part that's been a little harder to try and figure out we've had tremendous stimulus uh by governments by central banks uh on both sides of the canada u.s border and around the world and and so demand remains fundamentally very well supported and normally uh and and you would not worry so much about inflation taking off uh, unless you had say compensating wage gains and and then you know uh, uh, workers demanding higher wages, businesses uh, paying those higher wages, passing them on to their customers, and, and you perpetuate this wage-price spiral, which is something the Fed even says that despite very uh, rapid rates of uh, wage inflation currently, that's not the scenario that's that's likely to unfold or is unfolding uh, in in the U.S. And, and so uh, you know right now businesses do have some ability to pass on their higher costs but that's just because of shortages at some point you know bottlenecks do get uh, remedied and and those pressures begin to uh, dissipate. I guess where there's a really big risk here and in terms of you know do we settle back down to two do we settle around three most people when they're doing their their financial plans have always assumed 2% inflation well maybe we have to assume a little bit more it concerns with with this this other issue that's that's supporting demand it's all the excess savings that's been accumulated uh, uh you know due to the inability to spend because of shortages because of tremendous uh, support uh, uh, for incomes on both sides of the border uh, and 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 so you have this sort of uh, mass of, of uh, excess savings that can be used to keep demand strong but also keep paying higher prices for a little bit longer than otherwise be the case In other words, they kind of mimic a little bit the role of compensating wage gains and that's where a lot of the uncertainty kind of fits and quite frankly that's why central banks are you know uh, even they still believe in transitory meaning not permanent but transitory you know they've they sort of abandoned that at least the fed has and then i think the bank of canada as well is because they think these, these pressures will last a little bit longer because they're on the demand side of the economy but I do think at the end of the day, because this is not the 1970s. Central banks know how to remedy this quite quickly. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, and they will tighten interest rates to try and cool off demand, as Margaret mentioned. And, and that should help uh, bring back a little better equilibrium to, to price setting. And, and I think that will settle in with inflation, you know, perhaps
0: in the higher end of the twos, but definitely sub three percent. Amazing clarity. Thank you so much, Michael. OK, Dr. White. Uh, Since we started this malaise, let's call it, uh, when COVID became a reality, there's been a big argument out there or question, so I want you to answer this question as a doctor uh, and as a father. Uh, So what is the most important thing? Cases, hospitalization, deaths, where do you stand on that subject matter? And then part two question with respect to that you mentioned something very interesting that we're getting these tests but we don't really know if it is if someone's positive is it with the omicron or is it with delta um do we have any kind of preliminary data with respect to hospitalizations uh on omicron or anything like that so answer the first question it's kind of a big picture thing and then how does that how does that filter into the current situation because to us as observers and answering questions with clients, we're right back to where we were in February in terms of people's yeah. fears and what they should be following.
2: Brian, I really focus on hospitalizations and deaths. And, you know, at one point people are saying, well, we're having a case epidemic." Well, a thousand deaths a day is still way too many deaths. And, and this is why COVID is different than the flu in terms of the number of deaths the number of hospitalizations that we're having. And the impact of those hospitalizations, we've seen this and it's still happening in some sections of the country, is that people are not able to get other services. They're delayed in terms of their care for a heart attack or for a stroke. So that's the real concern that I have. You know, if we have 50,000 mild cases a day, that's not horrible from a public health perspective. It's inconvenience, it's, you know, it's tough on your life for a period of days, but that's not what we're still seeing. We're still seeing a fair number of hospitalizations, a fair number of deaths. So when we look at the metrics, that's what we should be focused on, the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths. I'd love to say, Brian, it should be the percent positivity of cases, but we're, we're still not doing a comprehensive testing strategy that's part of the problem. So and, and then a, for the other question, yeah. big academic centers will do the genomic sequencing uh, at the hospital when you're in the intensive care unit. At that point, you know, I wish we could avoid getting to that point, but it really speaks to the underfunding of our surveillance systems that we just don't have the labs to do it, we don't have the people to do it. You know, We have a scientific capability to do it. We just don't have the people and the labs to be doing it. You know, places like Finland (laughs) do do like 90% of testing in Denmark, but but that's not realistic for a country the size of the United States given the number of cases, or even in Canada. That's an area where Canada could do a little better as well
0: in terms of the testing of each positive case. Now, it's to um, our initial knowledge that this new variant came from South Africa, and you touched a little bit about how the U.S. and Canada is doing, you touched a little bit about the rest of the world. What is your view on vaccines for the rest of the world, and how do we get this out, and how do we, how do we kind of uh, defend against this going forward?
2: We have improvement in vaccine supply in many areas of the world, but it's the same issues of vaccine hesitancy that we have in North America, that people are resistant, they feel it's too fast, they don't understand it. You know, I do wanna reiterate the point in low income countries, we're talking about 8% of the population vaccinated. So they don't even have the vaccine to a large degree. And that's gonna be a challenge given that, you know, then we have another mutation be created and thrive in sub-Saharan Africa or another area of the world. It's not, it's not a surprise that we're seeing it come from where we are seeing it, India and Africa, uh, et cetera. So it's a real concern if we don't focus more on vaccinating the rest of the world. We can't have some areas of the world 10%
0: vaccinated.
2: That's going to be a problem for us.
0: So medically and scientifically, uh, it's already coming out that this strain is a little bit more mild relative to some of the other variants. Do you believe that's a trend, Dr. White, that this is potentially going to set the stage for, you know, less severe mutations going forward?
2: Yeah. You know, I'm hopeful, but let's keep in mind, this is like the 13th variant of concern. Each time we get a little more concerned, because when they mutate, you know, I mentioned before they become stronger, they don't become weaker, you know, the, the fittest ones survive. What we don't want to be is at a point where they evade the vaccine. So that's when they survive and thrive, they're going to develop you know strategies to make the vaccine less effective. And, and that speaks to the fact that, you know, even if we get mild cases, to your point, Brian, can we live with that as society? It's unrealistic to think that we're going to get to, to zero. But right now, the vaccines are holding their own. But if we continue to get variants every month for another year, I'm not sure that'll be the case. That's why it's so important to get this under control now. And, and a lot of people do kind of have this laissez-faire attitude now, like, oh, I'll, I'll wait it out. It doesn't seem so bad. You know, I don't need to do anything. And, and that's just the wrong strategy, either as an individual or, you know, as a country.
0: One quick question for Margaret, another quick question uh, for uh, Mr. Gregory. Margaret, what is your team's call on the Canadian dollar? What are you seeing the next 12 to 18 months?
4: Sure, and actually, that that might be a better question for Michael. I think that they held the call for for FX. Um, it, it really depends on um, I think the when the Fed tightens relative to uh, Canada, and as Michael mentioned, um, you know they possibly could be tightening at the um, same time. So I'll pass it to Michael to finish that one.
3: Sure. Well, well, part of our base case for the uh, Canadian dollar is that. Uh, we don't get a, a long-term drag on global growth by, uh, by the, the next wave of the, 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 the virus. And, and therefore we get some stability in commodity prices, oil prices specifically, and as everyone knows, they've kind of uh, weakened off quite, quite a bit very recently. And the other aspect of it is that the Bank of Canada does go a little bit sooner than the Fed. And both of those we think can push the, the Canadian dollar stronger to like 123 or something like that by the end of the year or stronger. But again, the, the timing of when the bank goes, the bank of goes and when the Fed goes is going to be critical to that, uh, to that outlook.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. I think it's time for my favorite part uh, of the call where we go around and, and say something optimistic that we're, that we're thinking. I've already told you our optimistic view in terms of uh, markets and a big bull market, and we should be much more fundamental and less rhetoric uh, and emotion driven. So we'll start with Margaret. Give us something to be optimistic about.
4: Uh, sure. You know, I, I think the, the reason for optimism in in the U.S. in, in terms of the rates market is that we shouldn't see a spike higher, or massively higher, I should say, in, in the long end of the curve. And so that should be still relatively accommodative. And uh, you know, good for economic growth. We do think that obviously the front end, where consumers, uh, consumer prices are set, or not consumer prices, consumer borrowing rates, um, will see you know a bit of higher, uh, higher rates. Uh, which of course, I mean, that's the point, right? To slow demand a bit. But we don't think that this is going to be a, a massive increase in rates. That you know, yields will still remain historically relatively uh, low. Uh, in terms of terminal rate and whatnot. And, and that's a positive backdrop. Um, you know, it's really just trying to slow things down a bit, but keep the economy on its path to recovery.
0: Thank you so much. Michael? Well, I think the thing i would be encouraged about is
3: that, yes, depending where you are in the world, what state, what province, what, what, what country, this is your third, your fourth, your fifth wave of, of, the, of, of the virus you're going through. And in each one... You know, we, we tend to uh, you know understand it a little bit better from an economic perspective. We're able to continue to 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 engage in in, in our you know our daily lives and in, in business operations, uh, regardless of, of those uh, restrictions. As long as they don't get too onerous, and and I think that's the key thing is that we're able to withstand. We've gotten kind of used to it as consumers and and running businesses, so it becomes more of a an inconvenience rather than, than something which, which shocks your confidence. and So I think there's a sense of resiliency and, and, and even if we have a lot of uncertainty about what happens this winter, I, I think the economy has pro- proven and businesses, the consumers have proved that it can be resilient. And I think that's probably a very encouraging thing to keep in the back of your mind as we head into this winter.
0: Dr. White, bring us home.
2: Yeah. I think we've seen enormous innovation in the biopharmaceutical industry sector. And I think that's going to have lasting implications for other disease states, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other conditions. Because what we're going to see going forward is regulatory flexibility by the FDA and other regulators. And I think we're going to see more partnerships. That's what we saw here with monoclonal antibodies and Genentech and Regeneron and Sanofi. So I think that has an impact on finding solutions for our current health conditions where we need more therapeutics. So I'm very encouraged by that.
0: Thank you, John. Uh, Thank you so much all of you for joining us. Please contact your BMO relationship manager and visit the webpage at bmocm.com or listen to our COVID-19 insights and podcasts for the most current updates. All of our subject matter experts here at BMO have written a tremendous amount of information and publications. So again, reach out to your relationship manager. We have distribution lists for our clients. Uh, They can facilitate that. We are here for you. I hope everyone's going to have a wonderful holiday season. Please keep safe and well, and we will be talking to you very soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com COVID-19.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com slash legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit com slash public dash disclosure slash.